The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. I told Jordan right at the end of our fellowship time there, I said when we get into Macomas, that's going to be a uh, chaos. So the only way to describe it, the, the room... The room seats as many people as we seat in here. It'll seat about 200, a little over 200 people. Um, so from a seating capacity perspective, it's fine. But from a square footage perspective, it's smaller. So you'll have less room to bump into each other. And so when we dismiss the kids, it's going to be, it's going to be something. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be something. And we will learn how to, uh, to operate with that. But uh, it is exciting to see those things coming together. And uh, we'll give you more information. Uh, I know some of you are starting to ask about what our first service is going to be there, or when it's going to be. Um, we're looking, we're targeting the first Sunday of October, which is October 7th. Um, but this is construction. So you should just keep that, you know, just keep that out there. It might go a little later than October 7th, but that's what we're hoping for. And as September rolls around and we get some more details about what's happening, we will pass those on to you so that you can be aware of everything that's happening and what we're going to do. So that's that. We're here now in Genesis 6. Let's read, uh, starting in verse 9, all the way through the end of the chapter, just like we did last week. Moses writes, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. Lord... We come back now to this story this week after last week having seen your anger. Last Sunday we looked and saw the incredible sinfulness of man. We understood how our sin is judged according to your perfect standard of holiness. Anything that falls short of that standard, anything that violates who you are in your holiness is sin, and the reality is, Lord, that every one of us in here are sinners. 
Because every single one of us have violated your holiness more than we can ever even be aware of. And yet, in the midst of all of this, we see that your plan is not finished. You're not done with this world that you have made that has fallen into wickedness. And so today, Father, as we come and we, we jump right back in where we left off last time, I pray that we will see this other side of you. That we will come to understand your great care for us, the provision that you have made for us in this world, the salvation that you offer us. Lord, help us to get to know you here in this story. Have our hearts and minds focus correctly on the text. May your spirit make it clear in each and every heart today, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's probably not good to begin with an obvious understatement, but I'm going to risk it this morning by saying to you right off the bat that I don't think I can fully appreciate or even comprehend all that our God is and all that he has done for us. And I know we all understand that. We all feel that to some extent or another. Sometimes, though, I think it hits me a little bit more than other times. He's so far above me, so far, so much greater than I am, so far more than I can ever possibly think or imagine that even on my absolute best day where I have my clearest, truest thoughts about him, I am still sadly deficient in my understanding of who he is. And I could give lots of examples or illustrations for that, but I'm really just going to focus on one through the course of this morning. As I just prayed last Sunday, we were looking at uh, this passage here, specifically verses 9 to 13, understanding the story that's commonly known as the story of Noah's Ark or the story of Noah's Flood. And in that story, when people normally come to it and they're going to preach on it or going to study it, they tend to simply focus on the details of certain issues that they want to argue about in relation to the flood. And when they do that, in effect, what they're doing is they are turning the story into nothing other than like a primary source of facts and figures that will bolster their argument or help them in their conversation with people who don't believe in the flood. Well... I think I've made it pretty clear, I don't think that's the right approach. As, as I've been arguing now for several weeks, I think that the purpose of this story is not to intrigue us with information about the flood, or about the boat, or about the animals, or about Noah, or about any other details. I think that the purpose of this story is to teach us something about God about who he is, his character, and his plan. And so, as I've been trying to think about how to approach this story as I was dealing with this or working through this several weeks ago, at some point along the way it hit me that the right way to work through this story is not by simply focusing on the details of the story, as is probably the more normal procedure, but to try to help us come to understand who God is through the details that he's given us here. To, to build a theology of God from this story, so that when we walk away, we have done honor to the purpose for which I think Moses is writing. We have focused our hearts and minds on the text, and most importantly, we have drawn closer to God as a result through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what we've learned about Him. And so I, I've chosen to approach the story in this way. Last week, we started by looking at the holiness of wrath and wrath of God here in verses 9 to 13. After Moses had introduced the story to us, introduced the main human character, uh, shown us some of the, the supporting cast that's going to be in the story, he begins by outlining for us just how bad the earth was. 
Remember the language that he used there in those verses? It was filled with wickedness, filled with violence. Every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. You get that back in verses 1 through 8. As you look at everything that he uses to describe this world, he describes a world that is, in my opinion, unlike any world that we can think of or imagine. It's that bad filled with that much wickedness, that much violence. And as it becomes clear in those verses, as God is looking at all of this sin, He hates it. He hates this sin. It's repugnant to Him. He's angry at sin. He's going to judge sin. He's going to condemn the sinners. And that I keep repeating the word sin here is not accidental. Sin is a biblical and theological term that describes anything that falls short of God's perfect standard of holiness. So here's God, here's his perfect standard of holiness, his perfect standard of righteousness. Anything that falls short of that, anything that misses the mark of that is sin. And of course, as I said earlier, all of us are sinners. All of us have done this repeatedly. God hates sin, and so he's punishing sin. In this story, the punishment for the great sin that was being wrought in the world at this time is a flood that is going to come and wash all of that away. He's going to kill everyone, except, of course, for Noah and his family. And what you learn here is that God's holiness is not something to be trifled with. Not at all. He is not a God who who takes injury lightly. When we injure God by sinning against him, it, it, it deserves a response. And he will give it, guaranteed. His holiness was one thing we saw. We saw his anger as well, how his anger is not like our anger. When God is angry with someone, he will pour out that anger, that wrath, to use the biblical term, on the right people, in the right ways, at the right time, guaranteed. Innocent people are never punished by God. There's just no innocent people, okay? People are never punished for things they don't deserve. If you're being punished, it's because you deserve it, okay? God always pours out his anger on the right people, at the right time, in the right way. So this was the God that we saw last week, this holy angry God preparing to destroy the world because of sin. Well, today, we're going to focus on some different attributes of God that are, I think, visible in the story. Ones that, at first glance, if we're not careful in our thinking, will seem to contradict what we saw last week. Because here, in the midst of all of this judgment, all of this this holiness, the sin that is being exposed because of God's holiness, here in the midst of this anger that he's about to pour out in judgment you see that God hasn't given up on his creation. That he still cares for it, cares about it, and wants to provide for it. And so how can the same God who hates sin so much that he wants to destroy the world and everyone in it, at the same time care for the world so much that he's willing to make a way of salvation for some? How? How do we reconcile these two seemingly contradictory thoughts in our minds? Well, that's the deficiency in our understanding of God that I want to address this morning. And so let's pick up right where we left off last time, here in verse 14. Told you we would just jump right back in from last week. 
And I want you to see what I'm talking about here in relation to God's provision and care uh, here in the midst of his judgment. In verses 14 to 16, God is giving Noah some instructions on this boat that he wants him to build. And here's what he says. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third deck. So now, just notice some of the details that he gives to Noah here in the story. He tells him the kind of wood that he's supposed to use. And the ESV translates this as gopher wood which just sounds weird to me. It's like, is this the wood that gophers prefer? I don't know. They have like a lumber yard somewhere. Um, in actuality, no one knows what kind of wood this is. The ESV translators chose to use the word gopher, but the word itself is only used this one time in the entire Old Testament. So what kind of wood it is, we don't know. Noah knew, God knew, and apparently this was helpful for the purposes of building a boat that's going to save everybody. So he gives him this specific detail. Next, he tells him that this boat is supposed to have rooms. If you look down at verse 16, it's also supposed to have decks. This tells you it's not just a simple little skiff or raft that he's building. This is a complex vessel uh, with multiple levels and compartments. This is a, a big deal, a big project. He tells him to cover the hole inside and out with pitch. Pitch was a common waterproofing agent that was used in the ancient world. God doesn't want any leaks. He gives him the dimensions that he wants it to be, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high in class. Refresh my memory, how big is a cubit, roughly? What? 18 inches, about the size of what? A man's forearm, so from your elbow to the tip of your, tip of your finger. Now, pause. Can I just make a general observation on that? This isn't the best form of measurement the world ever came up with, is it? This, there's a reason why we don't have football fields that are 100 cubits long today. Okay? We have yards and feet and meters. That's because what's a variant in cubits? How long the man's arm is? Okay, very good. You're all very, you're with me, and I appreciate that very much. Yeah, uh, if you're taller and your arms are longer, then the cubit will be a little bit longer, and that means that his boat would have been a little bigger. If he's a shorter man with shorter arms, the cubit might be a little smaller, and his boat would be a little smaller. My arm, I measured because I'm a dork. My arm <laughs> is 18 and a half inches long, so I'm a half inch above average. Okay, for which I'm above average in a lot of areas, right? Yes. <laughs> She gave me a half-hearted nod. I'll take it. Um, about a half inch longer than the average. So if I'm building the ark, my ark's going to be 12 and a half feet longer than the average. It would be 462 and a half feet. Ta-da. I did the math. So I'm just simply saying to you that when you think about the ark and you see people who are trying to depict it and show things to you about it, just keep in mind that what standard they're using will affect their depiction. It will affect, uh, it will affect the way you think about it. But generally speaking, the average I gave you is right. 18 inches is the rough size of a cubit. That means that the boat is about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. You know, that's hard, I think, for us to get our mind around sometimes. But just think of it this way. If it had a flat bottom, which it probably did, I would assume... I would assume, then it has a displacement of about 43,000 tons. That's almost half the displacement of an aircraft carrier. I don't know. We'll get to that. Thank you. Um, if it has, all, uh, it has three decks with all of the, the dimensions, it would have about 100,000 square feet of floor space inside. 
This is not a tiny boat stuffed to the brim like with animals. This is a big, big vessel that he's building. God's giving him all these specific details. He also gives him some just miscellaneous details that he wants here. Tells him to make a roof for the ark. And again, this is the only time this word translated as roof appears in the Old Testament. So it might refer to window or just maybe it does refer to a covering. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. It's a detail God wants. He also tells him to finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Now, why does any of that matter? Well, here's why it matters. Three, three things stand out to me here from this. First, God doesn't simply tell Noah to build a boat and then hope that he'd do it correctly. Hey, Noah, um, a flood is coming. It's going to be here in about, you know, let's say 100 years. Uh, build something so you don't die. Now, Noah gets to building, and he builds a raft that's roughly the size of maybe just right here around me, and he and his family can all fit on board, and God's like, oh, no, now all the animals are going to die. I messed up. I should have told him more information. That's not what happens. God wants a specific thing from him, and so he gives him the information that he needs in order to do what it is that God wants him to do. And I would simply point out to you that this is typical for how God always operates, that he always gives us the information we need in order to do what it is he wants us to do. I've said that to you before about the scriptures. Why is the Bible 66 books long, not 65, not 67? It's because this is what we need. I might want more information. I might like to know other things. But God is faithful to always give us exactly what we need to know. And here you see him doing that for for Noah. Second, God doesn't do it for him, which would be the one thing I would have really wanted most if I had been Noah. God doesn't do it for him. He says, go make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Go, go. Here you go. Here's the details. Here's what it needs to be like. Here's some of the things you need to do. But you go do it. He expects Noah to participate in this task. And... Speaking theoretically here, if Noah doesn't obey, what happens? He drowns, and everyone dies. This is is the reality of the situation, that God's not going to do it for him. He expects Noah to be involved in this process. And again, think think about what we saw back in Genesis 1 with creation. We said sometimes God works directly, right? Sometimes he just speaks, and boom, let this happen, and it does. Sometimes God works indirectly. He works through means. He uses other things to accomplish his purpose. And here you see him doing that with Noah. Third thing that stands out to me is that God doesn't bring judgment until Noah is done. And we'll see this more in chapter 7, which will start next week. But just simply think about this now. God gave him the time he needs to do what he's asked him to do. God is patient letting this occur. Mary asked how long it would take. I don't know how long it took. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter if it was three hours, three days, three months, three years, 30 years, whatever amount of time it took, God gave him that time so that he could do it. In all these things, you see evidence of God's care and provision for Noah. Next, we see God's promise. And here in verse 17, God says this, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, with you. And you notice here he begins by restating his promise to destroy the world. 
He already said he was going to do this, but now he's saying it again, as if we've forgotten, as if we don't understand fully. He wants it to be very, very clear. And I want to emphasize to you again the scope of this punishment, because he uses very specific words here to describe what he's going to do. He's going to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, people may want to debate or argue about the scope of the flood, whether it's a worldwide flood or it's a a regional flood or it's a local flood, and we'll talk more about that, I think, next Sunday, maybe the Sunday after, but we'll get to it. Uh, I'm sorry, not next Sunday, two Sundays from now. But regardless of which one it is, I want you to understand that the outcome of the flood is not in question. If it's just a local flood, let's just say for a moment it's just a local flood, it just flooded in this one little river valley, that means that everything that lived on the earth lived in that one place, and they all died. If it's a regional flood, and it it flooded out the whole Mediterranean basin, let's say, just for example, then that means that everything that lived on the earth lived in that area, and they all died. Or if it's worldwide, it doesn't really matter where they lived, they all die. There's no scenario here where the outcome changes. Everything on the earth, every living being, from the smallest ant to the largest animal to the people, they are all going to die. The outcome of the flood is not in question. God is super clear on this point. I'm going to bring this flood. It's going to destroy all flesh. Everyone will die. These are his promises, and they're scary. But... He wants to make another promise as well. And so he promises to Noah that he will make a covenant with him. And this is a super, super important moment in the story. Because this is the very first time in the Scriptures where God makes a covenant. First time this word is being used here. And from from this point on, from this point on, there's going to be Tons of covenants. There's going to be covenants between God and man on across all kinds of things. Covenants are very, very important in the scriptures. This is the first one. And if you're like, I don't, I don't know what a covenant is. Can you explain why that's so super important? And this is a, a critical moment in the story. Well, yeah, let me, let me give you a Stacy definition of what a covenant is. Okay, are you ready? A covenant is a relational contract. A covenant is a relational contract contract. And notice the words I chose to use here. You know what the word contract means, because probably almost everyone in this room is in a contract right now. When Jamie and I bought our house, we signed a contract with the bank, and we said, okay, we promise to pay X amount of dollars in exchange for ownership of the house and the land it sits on, and we will do this, and we won't do this. This is the contract that we have with our bank. If you have a cell phone in your purse or pocket, you all have a contract right now. That says on a monthly basis you will pay so much money and you have the privileges then of using their service and having all these other things that are that you've paid for on your phone. This is the contract. But here's the deal with those contracts. I don't really have a relationship with my bank or my cell phone carrier. Now they like to tell me I do. They send me things in the mail that talk about my banking relationship with them, and, and I know what they mean when they say that, but they don't really know me. I don't know them. There's no genuine relationship between me and the bank or between me and our cell phone carrier. It just doesn't exist. 
a covenant in the Bible is more than just simply a contract. A you do this, I do that. It's more than that because it is relational. There is a relationship involved in this contract, in these promises that are being made. It's a covenant, or excuse me, a contract that's based on a genuine relationship, particularly when we're talking about covenants that God makes with men. Because now we're bringing into the, into the equation God himself, his character, his nature, his attributes are all coming to bear on the promises that are being made. That's why I'm using this term here. And as you look about uh, here through this uh, section, it is clear that God and Noah have a relationship, is it not? I mean, just think back to what we saw in verses 9 and 10. Moses tells us that Noah is a righteous man. He's blameless in his generation, that he walks with God, that he fellowships with him daily. We, we, we see from the writer of Hebrews that he is a man of faith who believes that God is who he says he is. And if you look down at verse 22 real quick, you'll see the first of several references throughout the story to the fact that Noah obeyed God. This, this verse here is going to be repeated, I think, is it three or four times throughout the story in some form. As Moses wants to bring us back to this idea that Noah's an obedient man. He does what God asked him to do. You put all that together, it's clear Noah loves God. He has a relationship with God. He loves him so much that he wants to do what's right, that he tries to obey. He's going to fail, we know that. But he fellowships with God, walks with him daily. All of these things point to the fact that he knows and loves God. And guess what? God knows and loves him also. I mean, that's equally clear here in the story. God shows Noah grace. God chooses to forgive Noah of his own sins and rebellion. God chooses to save Noah and his family, to speak personally to him. What a privilege to speak personally to him, to tell him of his plan. He instructs him, helps him, guides him. All of these things show you that God knows and loves Noah. Just like Noah knows and loves God. There's a relationship here that's real and meaningful. So God's going to make a covenant with him. And in this covenant, you see what it is that God is promising at this point. Because there's more to come later on. But you see what he's promising at this point. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. In other words, God's promise is, I'm going to save you and your family. I'm going to spare you from this. From what's about to come. And it's certain. Why? Because God is promising it. And that's the thing that makes a covenant from God even more special than any other kind of covenant. I have a relational covenant with Jamie. It's a, it's a promise that we've made in marriage based on relationship. But we're humans. We fail. God never fails. And so if God makes promises to us, we know with certainty that they will be fulfilled. And so as I look at all of these things, two, two truths stand out from this. First, notice that the fulfillment of the covenant is dependent on who? It's on God and God alone. He's the one who will make sure that Noah is saved. He's the one who will do this. He's going he's gonna to do and accomplish all that he's promised. And but wait a minute, earlier we saw that Noah, Noah had to participate, right? That he had to, to do his part. He had to build the boat. Yes, but the certainty of him doing it 
is based on God's promises, not Noah's ability. God has promised that he will make this happen and all of God's promises will be fulfilled. Second, notice that God's covenant with Noah has blessings for others involved because we're never told that Noah's wife or sons or daughters-in-law are righteous people, blameless, walk with God, any of the things that Moses tells us about Noah. And yet, they're on the boat. (laughs) They don't die. They are blessed along with him. Like Noah, they're given grace by God. And so again, I just I look at this and I see evidence of God's great provision of, and care for Noah and his family, this time shown through his promises. And then finally, notice that God cares for other things here as well. In verses 19 to 20, he says, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that's eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and them. Okay, finally, here are the animals, right? Well, everybody loves, they love the animals. Here they are. And first he gives you the minimum requirements. It's two of every sort. In the next chapter, where you're going to see that the clean animals, there's actually seven pairs of those, not one pair, but as a general statement, no less than two, that's, that's the minimum. Second, he gives the scope of this provision is for every sort of animal. So just simply pointing out it's two dogs, not two Great Danes and two bulldogs and two chihuahuas and two of the, two dogs will do, two of every kind. And I, I say that only because sometimes I think we either overestimate, underestimate, whatever we might do, what the story is describing for us. And I'm trying to help us be realistic with the story and understand what he's describing. He, it's not every single animal. It's two of every sort of animal, so they be preserved on the earth, and that will, that will suffice. Third, he tells us that the animals will come to Noah. And I, again, I point this out because when you read people, they, they jump on this point saying, well, there's no way this could have ever happened. How would Noah have ever had the time to go get all these animals. That's not what the text says. The text says they're going to come to him. And so that's miraculous. Are you okay with miraculous? Because you have to be okay with miraculous. It's, it's the Bible, after all, and that's what happens. And here you see an example of it, how God is bringing these animals to him. And then finally, and most importantly, notice that he doesn't give any other details. That means that all your other questions about this have to be kept in their proper place and perspective. Well, maybe God brought in baby animals so they wouldn't take up as much room and wouldn't eat as much, and therefore it was just easier to take care of them. Okay, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. I I can't answer that. I can't confirm it. I can't deny it. There's no more details given. Keep it in its proper perspective. Well, maybe, maybe what God did was he made all the animals hibernate so Noah wouldn't have to take care of them, and that made it easier on him. Good guess. I have no clue. You can speculate all day long about whatever you want to speculate in relation to this. And speculation can be fine if and only if it can be kept in its proper place. What too often happens, though, and I know none of us are guilty of this ever, But what happens too often is that we tend to want to discuss and argue and debate over our speculations rather than what the scriptures actually make clear. And I'm saying to you, focus on what the text says. You can have your speculations, you can 
ask your questions, you can think your thoughts. That's fine. I, I have mine as well. Focus on what the text says. That's where Moses is trying to draw our point, our understanding. And guess what? If God had wanted you to know, if you had needed to know, he would have told you all the things you needed to know. Since he didn't tell you, it's obvious you don't need to know it. Finally, you see he takes care of their provision for food. He just says, take with you every sort of food that's eaten, store it up. It shall serve as food for you and them. So at least from that, you see some of the animals are eating. Not all of them are asleep. Somebody's eating this food. God wants to make sure that everything is taken care of. Now, what do we learn from all of this? There's was a lot of text. I was trying to get all of these pieces in so you had an understanding of what's going on in the story. But let me give you now three things about God's care and provision that I want you to see from the story. Three big picture ideas. And I'm going to warn you in advance, there is overlap in the three ideas. Okay? Purposefully. There's overlap in the three ideas. Number one, you see that God cares for his creation. He cares about it. I mean, just think about what verses 14 to 22 represent here in the story. God is going to destroy the world because of sin. Because the world has become filled with wickedness and violence, and so he's going to send a flood and kill everyone and everything. He's going to wipe the slate clean, and yet he wants to save it. He, he, he wants to save it, and so he, he saves a family of people in a boat full of animals. What you see here is that God is not giving up on his, his creation. He's starting over. He's going to recreate this world, because he has to destroy it because of its wickedness. He's going to recreate the world through them. He is going to fulfill his plan. His plan is not coming to naught. His, his purposes, his intentions are not being destroyed here. He will fulfill what he wants to do through these peoples and creatures that he saves. He cares about his creation. He cares about all the things that he has made, and he will see it through to the end no matter what. Number two... You see that God cares about their needs. God cares about their needs. There you go. Because he knows that the only way they have of surviving this is on a boat. It's not simply, hey, Noah, flood's coming. Um, good luck figuring out how to deal with that one. <laughs> it's do this. Do it this way. Make sure you think of this and this so that everything is taken care of. He understands what his creation needs and he provides for every single piece of it. And we doubt him, do we not, that he does that for us. Just throw that in. Number three, you see that he cares about their lives. It's kind of their biggest need. So from the smallest ant to the largest animal to Noah and his family, you see that God wants life to continue. He made this world, remember, to be a place of abundant life. And so even though he's about to bring death, he does not want life to cease on this earth. And so he makes provision to make sure that it continue. In all of this, you see that this holy, angry God who's about to punish sin is also a personal, involved, engaged, loving merciful, gracious God who is aware of his creation. He knows what they need. He's willing to have a relationship with them. And so he acts to make sure that all of this happens. Now, without stating the obvious a second time, you see this again in the gospel, do you not? In Romans 3, Paul is outlining what the gospel is. 
and what it does for us and, and how sinful we are and how God's salvation is given and, and how we, we become children of God. And in verse 26, he makes one of, a comment that is probably, to me, one of the most interesting comments there in Romans chapter 3. And there's a lot of interesting things in Romans 3. But he says here that God wants to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, you may never have stopped and thought about what that is talking about, but I want you to think about it this morning. Because it fits right in line perfectly with what we're seeing here in Genesis 6. By saying that God needs to be just... He's saying that in his holiness, he must punish sin. This is what God's justice is. God never is unjust. He never excuses sins that should be punished. You you don't slip under the radar with God. If, If there's sin there, he punishes it. That's what justice requires, what his justice requires, that he will do it. And so because he is a just God, he has to pour out his anger, his wrath on sin. It has to be punished. It deserves to be punished. He will do it. And yet at the same time, in a seemingly contradictory way, he also wants to be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? That means that he wants to forgive them to wipe the slate clean in a different sense than how I've been using it there in Genesis chapter 6. The word justify is a, is a, Roman, is a Greek word that was used in the Roman world to talk about how a judge would, would take a, a criminal who would come before him and would say, are you guilty of this, whatever, okay, they have, their, they have the trial, and he says, I justify you, I declare you righteous, innocent, guiltless, I wipe the slate clean, you are free. It's not that you're guilty and I'm not punishing you. It's that there's no guilt. You are completely declared righteous again and innocent. And so the same God who has to be just, who wants to punish sin, at the same time wants to justify, to declare righteous, to declare innocent the sinners who have sinned against him. How how can this be? How can the same God who must be just turn around and set sinners free? Well, the answer is right there. It's through faith in Christ. Because, well, not through being good, I should say that. It's, it, it's not through what we do. That's what he's trying to point out. It's not through the good things we do, the churches we go to, the, the money we give. It's not through anything we do. It's through our faith in Christ alone and his death for us, for our sins on the cross. It's because of what we talked about last week. That on the cross, a, a transaction is taking place. That as Christ stands there, or is hung there on the cross, God takes the sin of us and places it on his shoulders And then he pours out all of his anger, all of his wrath, all of his judgment on his own son. Guess what he's doing? He's being just. He found a way to pour out that anger and wrath on someone. He did it on his own son. And in exchange for that then, like we talked about last week, he takes the righteousness of his son, the sinlessness, the perfection of Jesus, and he places that on us so that when he looks at us, he can be the justifier, the one who declares righteous, holy, innocent forevermore. 
So that in the Gospel, Jesus hanging there on the cross satisfies both pieces. He allows God to be just, and He then makes God the justifier of all who place their trust in Him. This is exactly what we see in Genesis 6. There's no contradiction. Because our God is a loving, merciful, gracious God who wants to save us if we believe. And so I look at who God is and I'm amazed. I see He loves me. He meets my needs. He's told me everything I need to know and He's made a way of salvation for me if if I'll believe. And so... While it is true that on my best days, on my best days when I have my clearest, truest truest thoughts about who God is, that I am still sadly deficient in my understanding of Him, whenever I feel that way, I need to look at one thing, and one thing only, and that's the cross. Because there on the cross, I see what God ultimately has desired for me. A way to punish my sin and yet forgive me through the perfection of His Son. And since God's promises are always fulfilled, I have nothing else to fear.